0: Welcome back to the DC Yoga Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Chris Parkinson. We're here in the lovely Heirich House in DuPont Circle in Washington, DC, along with Brewster Panama. Um, My guests today are Annie and Amir, and they're owners at Sun and Moon Yoga Studios in Northern Virginia. Welcome, guys, to the show.
1: Hey, thanks. Thanks, Chris, for having us. It's yeah. great to be here.
0: Yeah, it's lovely to have you guys. Um, we uh, we try, this is called the DC Yoga Podcast. Um, we have had just DC Yoga teachers um, for the most part, with a couple of exceptions. And so I'm really happy to have you guys on the show because you are from Northern Virginia, which is a part of the community. And so I may change the name to the DMV Yoga <laughs> Podcast. <laughs> uh, actually, Arlington <laughs> used to be part of DC. Is that right? Yeah. 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 Um, so so, uh, so tell us a little bit first about the yoga studios. You have two of them,
2: is that right? Yes, we have um, one in Arlington in the Cherrydale neighborhood, and the other one is in Fairfax, Mm -hmm. um, in Main Street in Fairfax City. Um, We've been around, this is our 25th year, um, so we're one of the longest-standing studios around.
1: Um, We are really interested in the community aspects of what we do. And as you know and probably many listeners know, yoga has become... A, a catch-all phrase for a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. and it 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 um, in some in some ways, it's unrecognizable, I think from from its origins at least in the u s in the early twentieth century, and in other ways, there are streams and strains of it that have continued throughout and 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 uh, and what we do in terms of community building is to really try and, Focus our programming on on the parts that resemble those original strains, which is mindfulness and and uh, possibilities for the best flavor of well being than anybody could imagine.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so, would you say that um, your studios are more of a community center than just a yoga studio, like a place for the actual community to come together and and.
2: That's, that's one of the big reasons that people come. Um, they want a piece of community, and we, we definitely are heavily involved in our community. Um, you know, the, I kind of find the reasons that people come to our studios, um, they want community, uh, they want healing. You know, We treat yoga as a healing art, um, and they want to become, uh, they want to meditate. They want to uh, calm their emotions. They want to be able to navigate through modern life with much more ease um and that's kind of the niche you know of where we are um we've kind of seen over the last you know decade or so that mainstream yoga has really just become a pe class in way you know, people want to mm-hmm. go and and sweat and that's one thing you can do with yoga you know if you want to but you know the the body of knowledge of yoga is a huge a huge thing and um you know when mainstream starts to think of it as just kind of a pe thing we just kind of think that's one small strip you know, of what it can do. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we, you know, we're kind of old school, you know, that way. And that's, you know, the way that we were brought into the yoga world. Um, Well, why don't we go back to that for
0: a second? Why don't we go, how did you get started, Amir?
2: I, um, okay, let's go back to early 1990s when I was a young man. Yeah, (laughs) I had really severe debilitating back pain. Every moment of every day was uh, devoted to something with my back and, um, I started to go into all the professionals, the doctors gave me drugs that didn't do anything to cure back pain, it just made my head loopy. Um, I went to chiropractors for a long time and they would adjust my spine and it would feel good for exactly two hours and then it'd be back to where I was before. Um, and the doctors were really kind of at their wits, they eventually sent me to a surgeon. I had my back x-rayed and the surgeon uh, looked at my x-ray and he immediately says, oh, I can fix you. And he pointed to a point on my spine and said, I'll operate right there and I'll remove some discs and you'll be fine. And so we talked for a while, I was really happy. And, and then I asked him, you know, a little bit later, I said, "I said, okay, show me what you see on this, this x-ray because it looks like a normal spine to me. And he pointed to a different spot on my spine and said, oh, there's not enough space right there. And it really made me confused because I just thought he was just kind of like guessing because he pointed to two different spots. Whoa. Yeah, and so I, I, I did a lot of research and I found out that a lot of people um, would complain more about complications from surgery than actually got relief from it. And so I was at my wits end and someone just casually mentioned to me, they're like, oh, I heard yoga's really good for back pain. So this is the early 90s before there were yoga studios around yeah. anywhere. When, and where were you? I was in Fairfax in Fairfax. Uh, Fairfax County. Mm-hmm. And um, and my answer when someone said, I heard yoga's really good for you, my answer was like, what is that? Isn't that a religion? and and they didn't even really know the answer they just said I heard yoga is really good for back pain they'd seen some type of clinical study that did that and I got really lucky I happened to find um a woman teaching Iyengar yoga you know very strictly alignment-based yoga at the rec center uh about a mile from my house and I started taking weekly classes I didn't I didn't even tell her I had back pain but I was just kind of like yeah I'm gonna give this a try And three, four months later, I started noticing that my level of pain was getting less and less. It's the only thing that was helping me. And I didn't realize like what was happening, but I started to realize that something was happening. And so I dove in headfirst. I was just like, this is working. And, you know, I finally, you know, figured out over time that, well, yoga is this process that brings your body into balance. And the reason I had low back pain was because my body was out of balance and, you know, your lower back is kind of a fulcrum point in your body. So all these imbalances gather into that area. Yeah. And as I was making myself more balanced, that strain was going away. It
0: was going away, yeah.
2: And it took me several years of, you know, persistent practice and study that one day I woke up and I was like, wow, I haven't felt that pain in a long time. It wasn't like, you know, it, just did, but it, was, it was sustainable. You know, it wasn't like when you have surgery, you might get relief right away, but then it starts to come back after a while. You know, in this case, it was like I would keep practicing and it would go away. And so part of my um, my study was um, taking more advanced courses. Yeah. Everywhere I could find. And then eventually, you know, I found a studio and uh, I found my way into teacher training.
0: What year was that?
2: That was uh, 96, 97. And where could you do teacher training around here? Well, I uh, found a, a local yoga studio. Did, yeah. um, I just would drive by and found it, and um, so I started doing that. Um, and at the same time, I started um, learning more about therapeutics. Um, I started realizing that it was it was fixing other parts. You know, this neck pain that I was having, shoulder pain that I was having. Um, I realized that there was this whole world that I could, you know, fix in my body that no one ever tells you the secrets mm-hmm. about. Um, and then I, well, it's a big part for me was I um, became friends with a teacher named Rodney Yee, mm-hmm. who was, you know, my first big-name teacher that, you know, I started studying with. And, uh, you know, he came from an Iyengar background, and that also, a lot of that training, you know, really inspired me to, you know, to think about uh, alignment in my practice. And this is right when I first started teaching as well. Um, so then I started teaching. And when I started teaching, I decided that, you know, my focus would be on imparting these secrets on everybody that had these common pains that we see. I'm not the only person that ever had back pain. Yeah. I'm not the only person that's ever had shoulder and neck pain or knee pain or any pains. Um, And then these people started flocking to what I was teaching. You know, it seemed to resonate with them. And that's kind of how I got into teaching, yeah. and and how it started. Did you growing. know? So
0: did you? Um, did you? Ha- are you? F- you're full time. You guys are full time here, right? Yoga studio owners, no other <laughs> jobs, right? No, I yeah, do. We <laughs> wish.
1: <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> I do. I uh, I've um, I was an IT consultant for 25 years, and uh, now I'm a senior technology advisor at the FDA. Okay,
0: so yeah, so you were so, so okay. So did, so you weren't? Did you ever do like the full time yoga thing
2: where you were like no. just yeah? No, this has always been. You're not missing much. This is. I <laughs> do I do what I have to do so I can do what, you know, this is my calling yeah. to do this. Yeah. But, you know, the economics of yoga studios is, is very hard. And, you know, to be able to do it just with, you know, to make a living and, and be able to live in this area is very difficult. Real hard. Yeah. So you kind of have to do something else. And in this case, it's, you know, this is just something that's been my passion. The other stuff I'm really good at, right. you know, so I've been able to make a really nice career with that. But, um,
0: yeah. Well, Annie, how did you get started?
1: So my first exposure to yoga happened when I was four years old. And I was with my family visiting my grandmother in Brookline, Massachusetts. And it was early in the morning and everybody was still asleep. And I crept out of my room and I guess there was a room downstairs. I was staying in with my brothers and I looked up the stairs and I saw my grandmother doing a headstand at the top of the stairs naked. And well, that's
0: something you don't see every day.
1: <laughs> so I said, Grammy, what are you doing? And she said, Yoga. And so that that was it. Like that was the seed that got planted in me, mm-hmm. which didn't really start to grow and and bloom until much later. Also, my mother took yoga classes mm-hmm. in the seventies, like at the gym at the local community center.
0: Did you did you ever find out where your grandmother learned
1: yoga from? So she followed a, uh, I forget his name right now, but it, he was a popular health educator in the Boston area in mm-hmm. the fifties. Wow! And he he taught mostly women, mostly housewives, about how uh, how doing yoga exercises and meditating and eating vegetarian food could help them feel better. Wow! Yeah, yeah. And so she was she Grammy was cutting edge.
0: Yeah, about to say, yeah, cutting edge in the 21st century back in the 1950s. Yeah. yeah.
1: And my mom was pretty cutting edge too just in terms of the whole healthy lifestyle. My house was the least popular house for my friends to gather after school because there was no sugar, <laughs> nothing good to eat. I mean, literally orange juice was the sweetest thing in our house. So she she set me up for some really good lifelong habits. And so then 1994, early 94, I was living in Adams Morgan here in D.C. And uh, I became friendly with some neighbors. And uh, Kurt and Bobby, shout out to Bobby Ponce Barger, who was my first yoga teacher. Mm. And Bobby was teaching out of their apartment, the Clydesdale on Adams Mill Road. We could hear the monkeys from the zoo out the window. And it was just Wednesday night at Bobby's. For yoga, and they had a spare bedroom, and we each had one cotton Mexican blanket and a wood floor, and it was like six or seven of us who would show up every week, and Bobby just taught us. She was new to the neighborhood at the time, and she just wanted people to practice with, and she had trained with a woman named Prue Kestner on the on the um, the eastern shore of Maryland, who had studied with early teachers in India and so it was it was really one of those classic old time stories of teacher to student teacher stu- teacher to student passing down on a really personal level now the teachings yeah what
0: did that class look like
1: well <laughs> it looked like considering like
0: you know the class is what they look like today I right know, what it did just that class look like like
1: us just doing like did poses. you guys do sun
0: salutations did yeah, you do did like everything. we did okay
1: we did sun salutations she taught us headstand and shoulder stand mm-hmm. she taught us to meditate she's now an ordained Zen uh, uh, minister. Mm-hmm. And the first time I showed up for yoga with Bobby on Wednesday nights at the Clydesdale, she had us uh, first pose. I'll never forget it was child's pose, mm-hmm. and I got into child's pose, and tears began to stream down my face. Oh wow! And I thought, what is going on? I this is really cool. I didn't know anything was wrong. I was decently well adjusted at the time, or so I thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, the yoga brought up other information for me over the years and so after class I went up to her and I said and I didn't know her that well really because she was new to the neighborhood and I said I said Bobby I'm embarrassed to admit this but I cried like I sobbed in child's pose and she's like oh yeah and I said what was that what how do like why did that happen and what does the yoga have to do with like a a psycho-emotional experience and she said, "You know what? You should read the Bhagavad Gita." Oh uh, yeah. And so I did. I went to Kramer Books, and I picked up an old copy, mm. and I read it. And then I went back, and we talked about it more. And I read it more, and talked about it more. And so, so my interest going forward was really in s- in so many ways the opposite of Amir's, at least from the the outset about that I was coming to it from an emotional and, and spiritual, spiritual place, parts, and he yeah. was coming to it from a physical place. And the two absolutely meet in the right blend yeah. in the middle. And, and so anyway, when I, when I decided that I wanted to become a yoga teacher, it wasn't at all the sort of yoga teacher that we associate now. Mm-hmm. I, I was teaching high school. English, and, and that was early on in my practice. And I, and I taught in a pretty rough school in Hyattsville, Maryland. And I was, I was much smaller than most of my students, and I had a much more privileged background. And so I would show up, and I, and I needed to find ways, not just to connect to the students, but to connect to something powerful inside myself so that I would feel legitimate in anything I was offering to them and so i would picture myself in warrior pose going into school every morning and and so the yoga started to support my teaching and the teaching started to inform my yoga and then i i told bobby that after i oh so I, then i had twins along the way so i little thing I, <laughs> so i had two infant children and I thought, well, I don't think I can go back into the classroom on an everyday basis and do this, at least while the kids are still young, but I still want to do something. And I want to do something that involves teaching, so I talked to Bobby about it, and she said, well, why don't you find a way to, to teach the lessons that you've learned philosophically? And so, and so, however, in order to do that, she said, you probably should take a yoga teacher training. So I did a, a radiant child training with Shakta Kar Khalsa yeah. in 2000, and then and then when we moved to Arlington, I found Sun and Moon, and I did teacher training then. So that was 2002, and I and I and then I just fell into the rest of it. Just fell into to s- teaching asana at the studio, and I fell into uh, taking a more administrative role, and so. My partnership with Amir evolved in terms of uh, the business partnership and the, and the personal partnership and and on from there. So what did
0: so what did yoga look like back in the late '90s, mid '90s in the DC area?
1: <laughs> uh, we didn't have as cute outfits for <laughs> sure. <laughs> T-shirts and baggy sweats, yeah, <laughs> which I still wear sometimes. <laughs> and who
0: was and who was taking yoga?
2: It was more crunchy granola, was it? You know, at the time, yeah, it was people that were, were searching for it. Um, people that would see the yoga sign on the street and would have a curiosity about it. Um, but there weren't advertisements on TV like you should do yoga and everything. So, you know, people coming into this whole new experience, and if it resonated, they would stay, and if it's not, you'd never see them again. Um, but it wasn't like something that you have to do. Right. And so the classes were, were smaller. Um, and the community was definitely much heavier. Like, you know, people would see each other, you know, all the time. You know, they, they, they kind of be at the studio and it's still like that at our studio. Um, even, you know, the crowds have gotten bigger over the years, um, at the time, there were fewer yoga studios, much fewer yoga students, and not many teachers at the time. There was actually a greater demand for classes than there are teachers. Now, with the proliferation of, of yoga teacher training schools, there's a whole lot of teachers out there. Um, and if you divide them, the number of students by the number of teachers, it's actually kind of a small number. Uh, the other thing that used to be um, uh, more prominent at the time was the national teachers, There were um, some national teachers that would get huge crowds, you know, by visiting. And now a lot of those older teachers are retiring um, and not teaching so much. And the ones that are still out there are still getting the big crowds. But, you know, there's people that um, you mentioned some of the the big names, you know, like Eric Schiffman or Rodney. And they're kind of like, I don't know who that is. Mm -hmm. You know, and you're just like, really? Like, you know, those are the people that, you know, we kind of uh, were trained by you know, at the time and resonated with us. Right. Well,
0: hopefully you know. the people that have, cl- have taken classes with them
2: and trains with them are now out in the world. and
0: Yeah. So that they're, you know, the knowledge yeah. has, has spread, but right?
2: Yeah, but, but one of the things that, that's kind of interesting is that it, for, for the younger people now, it's harder to, you know, get that national audience um, just because, you know, because of the way things have come. You know, uh, there's a bit of corporate uh, corporate movement along, you know, these big chains coming in with studios and they've kind of commoditized know, the word yoga and so you know they don't even mention the big names um,
1: oh, I, and and also mm. you know the the way people become known now is is on Instagram and and social media has taken the place in certain respects in 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 our space um, of yoga generally speaking taken the place of of the of that personal connection which is which is a, a thing that we that we are are working to to offer an, an alternative to every day you know there's there's the there's sort of the current prevailing consumer culture view of yoga as like a commodity to dress up and wear a fancy outfit and get a fashionable workout and then there's also that like the opposite perception of yoga from 1960s Hollywood which is a you know, a bunch of vegetarian hippies walking around saying, "Hey, dude, pass me the tofu." And I don't know, my chakras are out of balance today. And 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 you know, that's like we are neither of those.
0: Ninety-nine percent of people who do yoga are
1: neither of those. Exactly, <laughs> <years>. <laughs> right. And it's yeah. And and really, when it comes down to it, it's just like yoga is about paying fierce attention to whatever is arising in the moment and and finding. Any avenue you possibly can to show up with equanimity and compassion.
0: Mm-hmm. That's beautifully said. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, in your classes, how do you weave in the old school yoga yoga with all the the need for you know the the athletic you know crow poses and headstands and all that?
1: Yeah, we, we Amir and I have really opposite approaches, and and yeah. and so we I I like to think we cover all the bases, but you go for.
0: Well, so so <laughs> I need to go to your class first and stick
2: around for his class after to get my. <laughs> you
1: know, there's, a, there's a real interesting <laughs> it thing depends that. That's what you're looking for. Yeah.
2: yeah, there's there's a real. We teach a lot together as well, and it's a real beautiful thing when we do, because we're so complementary to what each other's uh, strengths are, mm-hmm. and you know I really defer all the philosophy stuff, you know, to her, you know, and she kind of does you know, the same thing with you know with the physical stuff with me. Um, but you can kind of imagine, you know, my, my theory on uh, what yoga, you know, how much we know about yoga, one person can't know everything. And if you try to, you're not gonna know it very well. okay. But you know bits and pieces. Um, and that's what we do with our teacher trainers is that we, we, try and, we give them the basics and then we try and guide them into the areas that they wanna specialize in you know, with all of that so they can become really well-rounded teachers.
1: So w- one thing that I tell teacher in, in our teacher training programs, one thing that I, that I tell them when we talk about sequencing a class mm-hmm. is I say that think about the idea that every yoga class would tell a story and decide up front what you want that story to be. And so it could be that you want it to be the story of healing your lower back pain. And that's a class that Amir will teach. Mine could be a story about how to bring the qualities of compassion and equanimity into your into your moment-by-moment moment experience, and that would be a class that I teach. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so the story that Amir is telling is about finding that clarity in the body and allowing it to inform the rest of your experience in your heart and mind and soul, and mine is finding that clarity in your heart and mind and soul and letting it inform how you are feeling it in your body.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, um, I like to think, uh, in my classes, I try to do both those things as well. I try to add that, you know, spiritual and, um, uh, philosophical element, um, to a vigorous practice. Um, and I think, you have to have sort of a physical, a physical practice uh, because there's no better way to get somebody to pay attention to what they're doing than to make them, you know, do side plank for <laughs> right. for 30 seconds, exactly. right? I mean,
1: yeah, because we're <laughs> in our bodies; we don't have a choice about that.
2: Yeah. And wh- one of the things that that I've always wanted to, the kind of teacher I've always wanted to become, and and that I, I think I've done successfully is, I didn't just want to call out poses to people and you know and, and think that there's some type of magic in the sequence. I really want the students to come away with, you know, the idea of if I'm going to do a forward fold, why would I want to do a forward fold? And how do I do it in a way that benefits me? So, you know, with any simple, you know, simple pose, you know, there's thousands and thousands of variations that you can make along the way. And the idea is that you really have to customize it for what your body needs. And and that's really what I want to get away from, you know, with people. It's like, don't make it look like you see in a magazine. You know, that has no value to you. But if you can really become mindful in, you know, in how your body is folding in half, and if it creates strain in a particular area, how can you do it without creating strain? How can you get it to open up the tight areas? How can you, can you really tune in and see where the imbalances are and use the pose as a tool to actually create balance, you know, in your body? And then when you do it in class, you know, when you're at work and you're sitting at your desk and you start to realize, you know what, I'm, you know, short on my right side and I know how to elongate, you know? And if I, practice that. Eventually, I'm not even thinking about it. I can hold my body with a habitual pattern that is totally balanced. And then I won't have these aches and pains.
0: How how specific do you get in class? In other words, you know, this is sort of a debate among t- yoga teachers, right? So saying like, do you use like, you know, do you say thigh or do you say quadricep muscles? Do you, do you actually teach the actual like muscles
2: involved and the joints involved? Or are you, well, are you more oblique than that? This, you know, I had someone um, introduce me to someone uh, a couple months ago, and they said, This is Amir, he's an expert on anatomy. <laughs> and I was like, No, that's not really true. <laughs> you know, because I I know I know how the body functions. Right. You know, I don't know all the names of every single bone and every single muscle and all of that. In fact, when I teach my workshops, you know, I'll say, like, hey, there's a group of 12 muscles here and they do this, but this is what they're supposed to do. Um, and so it's, and and I, you know, I don't say patella, I say kneecap. You know, I say upper arm and lower arm. I don't say, you know, I don't give the bone names. I just do it in very common language that everybody can understand. Um, Even with the Sanskrit names of the poses, I never use Sanskrit. I just, I'm very, you know, American, you know, in a way that the common person will understand. You can come to my class, you're not gonna feel, you know, out of place because of the way that I'm talking. Right.
1: But you also don't name poses very often.
2: I don't. Yeah, I don't either. In my class, I love that. Keep going. Yeah. Yeah. going. And there's a reason, you know, when I first started teaching, you know, you have to name the poses. And I was always taught you should always name the poses. But what I found, you know, in fact, when I teach, it's like I really, I might do something that might look like triangle pose, okay? Because I'm giving you all the instructions to get there and getting you on the path, you know, to get there. And at the end, it might look like triangle pose. Um, But if you're really paying attention, it might not look like it looks in the magazine, but you're doing something expanding in your body, and something that feels like you created the challenge in your body, where all the parts of the the pose are. But you're feeling really good in it because you've you've kind of worked your way into it, and and it's working in a way that you know that helps you. Yeah, um, for sure. But if I came out, I, I really my experience has been if I came out and said come into triangle pose, people just flop into it in the same habitual way they always do, and there's no real benefit outside of it, just repeated the same patterns that they always do every single day
0: yeah agreed and i think it's the mark of a an experienced teacher to be able to get somebody into a pose without you know if you can say put your foot here and put your knee here and put your hip here and put your arm here then you can get them into the pose that way um, instead of just saying come into warrior two yeah Uh, and the other reason i like it is because if I say come into Warrior Two, what people do is they get into Warrior Two and they go, All right, so I'm gonna have spinach and chicken for yeah. dinner. And like so yeah. if I but if I tell them in other words how to do it step by step, they have to listen to me. And it's that listening, right, that is that they're practicing presence through that listening, right? So they have to pay attention so that they don't start thinking about what they're gonna have for dinner. That's and the
1: golden ticket. Yeah. It's that paying attention and and, and being willing to surrender to the not knowing in in those long beats of, you know, three seconds <laughs> between not knowing what pose you're getting into and then voila, you're in a pose. Yeah.
2: We, we play this real interesting trick with our, our teacher trainers. Um, you know, we, we come and we teach them how do you teach a pose. You know, the standard here is, you know, where you do it. And then we did this last weekend. We bring them in. And we make them observe everybody doing the pose, which, you know, as a teacher, that's what you eventually have to do is be able to see bodies and you know and note what you're seeing. And then we change their pose completely. You know, we align them correctly for what their body is telling telling us. Um, at first they're a little confused because they don't know they're like, hey, that doesn't really fit the picture. But when you get them, for example, we were working with downward-facing dog pose. And, you know, you take the weight out of their shoulders and out of their arms and their pose just blossoms and like, whoa, how did that happen? You know, because you've you know, you've looked at the energy of the body and you've you've made it flow the way that it's supposed to in the pose. Um,
1: So part of the the observing part of the exercises is really informative because what we'll have we'll have somebody take a pose and in in a sort of non-traditional way or not exactly, like not a picture-perfect way. And then we'll have everybody make an observation about it without correcting it. So we, we it's a drill and it's hard. Yeah. It's really harder than it might sound to say factual statements only without like, instead of uh, her feet are too close together, it's her feet are close to each other, or her feet are wider than her hips or narrower than her sitting bones. You know, her shoulders are closer to her ears than they are to the floor, or her hips are turned toward one corner of the mat. So facts only, just what you observe without trying to change anything.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, my my theory with, with all of this, too, is that when you come into a pose, you should be, the, the thought of like, I could stay in this pose for 20 minutes, it wouldn't be a problem. When you're aligned correctly and you're, you're bearing the weight and the joints, you know, in a distributed fashion throughout your body, you're going to, you know, you're aligned, you know, pretty well. You know, yeah, I you think
0: this that. is one of the, one of the common misconceptions about yoga is mm-hmm. that um, yoga is meant to make you more flexible. Right, and there's there's a certain truth to that, but it's a myth, like all myths, right? So there's a kernel of truth there. I mean, you kind of just put your 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 finger on it. What I think, anyway, the purpose of a pose is, is to find stability, mm-hmm. and range of motion, and power, and so flexibility doesn't mean anything if you don't have any strength behind it. Right. So that, that you, what you just said, you know, holding the pose for you know a minute, two minutes, three minutes without struggling. Right, means that you have power and you have range of motion, you have stability, real stability in your joints. Yeah. Right.
2: And and you know, the, the ancient texts say the poses should be held steady and with ease. And Annie can tell you the the Sanskrit words. Yeah. See that's her expertise. <laughs> but yeah, the poses should be held steady and with ease. And if you're struggling and sweating, that's not steady and with ease. That's because you're, you know, you're probably misaligned, which you're compensating by using too much effort. Um and I always tell my students, it's like, if you do everything with the correct alignment and the correct amount of effort, it's going to go well. But if you do anything in life without the correct alignment or correct amount of effort, it's probably going to go off somewhere.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, Annie, where do you usually go to? What's your what's your go-to text for 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 classes?
2: Oh,
1: hands down, the Bhagavad Gita. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Yeah, I I find that its teaching is is. Uh, it's absolutely universal, and it's absolutely inspiring, and it is informative in a way that reminds us why we're here. Which, <laughs> for at least from my perspective and from the yogic perspective, is to is to use the tools that we've been given as a human being uh, to act in ways. That support uh, a peaceful existence in the world, and it's and talk about myths. It's an absolute myth that the Bhagavad Gita condones war. So I don't, you know, I don't know how familiar generally people are with the story. But essentially, it's it's a conversation between the young warrior Arjuna and his charioteer, who happens to be an incarnation of God Krishna, and uh, Arjuna is. Throwing a temper tantrum and saying he doesn't want to fight the battle, and and Krishna is saying, uh, "Son, get up, gather yourself together, and go and do what you were born here to do, and it will go well. And you and your concerns are misplaced. So he's concerned that he's going to kill people with whom he grew up and and trained and studied with and played with in 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 his childhood." And Krishna says, you know, these things, regardless of what you do or don't do, people will die, things will happen. But if you do what you were meant to do with full attention and with love in your heart and equanimity in your presence, then it will go exactly the way it was meant to go. And the battlefield is the battlefield that is not a literal one, but it's the one that goes on in the hearts of mi- hearts and minds of every human being, and so it, it is a call to action, and, and what I was referring to earlier as fierce action, and it, it's not easy, and uh, and and it's absolutely beautiful and beneficial and and supportive of the fabric of being in this world.
0: Now, do you usually um, do you usually add. You know, do you do a Dharma talk at the beginning of class, the end of class? Is that usually what you're doing?
1: I always do a Dharma talk. So what I, um, Sun and Moon is organized around four quarters a year. So we're set up like a school. And, and our students, most of them approach it like, a, like, like a, a class, a course over a term. And so they come from beginning to end. And our teachers cover a, a full range of material, if you will, over the course of of the quarter and it's seasonal and so for me personally each season I have an opening sequence that stays the same every week and that lasts about 10 minutes and uh and then I bring people to sit and then I do a Dharma talk on a theme that I've chosen for the season and I change the talk and I do uh, you know variations on the theme each week that changes so so opening sequence, then not long, five-minute Dharma talk, and then I create the rest of the practice depending on what the theme was and what the talk was.
0: Very cool. Yeah, very cool. Um, how do you usually structure your classes, Amir?
2: Well, um, you know, my themes, a lot of times, uh, they, they might focus on different things. A lot of times they're, you know, the therapeutics. Like, you know, one of the examples were brought up is it might be about lower back stuff. Um, you know, popular things is like when I do neck and shoulders or hips seem to be a real big one as well. Um, you know, this week we're working on restoratives, you know, it's the, it's the end of our session, you know, this week. So, you know, the idea is to get people to open up, you know, without, um, stimulating the nervous system, you know, to get the body, when you get the nervous system to relax the most and let everything just melt open. Great thing to do at the holiday times. Yeah. Um. You know, so I do that. I'll, I'll do a lot of, you know, a lot of the work that I do is is um, guiding people through their own personal types of things. I, you know, I, I consider, you know, what I'm doing is when I'm working around a particular, you know, set of poses is the structure around the poses and not the poses themselves. So there might be some recurrence, you know, with all of that, like if we're working with hips. You know, it's it's to get the hip, you know, the hip joints to move in all the different directions, you know, throughout the whole class, and... And get people to, to start to realize, like, what's happening when we rotate the thighs in and what happens when we rotate them out? You know, do, do they rotate in easier for the person or do they rotate out easier? Or does does one turn out more than the other one? You know, and then, you know, start to guide them. Like, well, if you start to feel these, you know, s- these imbalances, how can you start to bring more symmetry back, you know, into your body so that, you know, you have more balance, you know, in your pose? Yeah. Um, so a lot of it is, you know, it's it's... It's getting the people to, you know, to really kind of like tune into what we're doing, um, in kind of a non-yoga traditional way. But it is because it's all really, it, it's all yoga poses. But um, not that you might find, a you know, way into find in a different class in somebody else's class. Um,
0: so how do you? So how do you? So you feel mostly the students really enjoy the old school application.
2: Well, you know, I always tell our teacher trainers it's like, you know, do what resonates with you when you yeah, teach do what resonates with you and the people that that resonates with will find you.
0: I've always thought that to be true. I teach my my two yoga teachers the same way when I do my teacher training is like if what you're teaching is truly what you believe, the what you believe in like you're teaching the poses you like, you're teaching the the type of yoga that you like people are going to come to your class just because of the charisma of the sequence and because of you. And it doesn't matter. I mean, it doesn't matter whether you play music, you don't play music, you do handstands, you do headstands, whatever it is, if as long as it, it resonates with you and you can, you can, um, relate that to other people in an effective way, people are going to come to yeah. your class. Yeah.
1: Authenticity yeah. is always a bestseller. Sure.
0: Yeah. sure. Um, so two studios, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, do you teach at both? you guys teaching on both
1: Primarily we we he and I teach in the Arlington studio. We have a staff of over 60 teachers. M- most of them, I, at least more than half of them have been around either since the beginning or at least 10 years or more and have built up their steady followings. We have we have uh, families who who move through their their st- Big highlights of life and celebrate it at the studio. We've seen, for example, I I had a, a student when I was teaching high school, who was who came to my teens class, and ten years later, this last year she finished teacher training <laughs> with us. We've had people come when they had prenatal yoga with us and are sending their kids off to college those babies that were birthed in the midst of of them practicing at sun and moon we have people who have who have suffered the worst losses and and griefs of their lives and shared that in in our space as we've held space for them to grieve and process the the loss of loved ones and and tragic circumstances. We, uh, in terms of of our community commitment, we've done things like every election day, we do either free or $5 classes all day because we're really, really um, put as a priority civic engagement. Um, After the election of 2016, we had an election recovery class that Friday night Oh boy! I mean, the tears and yeah. the and the, the we didn't even have room to roll out mats. We just had people grab one blanket or bolster and lie down over it or sit up on it, and we kind of just like all got through it together. Um, we've done. We have a yoga for good program. Where nonprofit we try to try to make it local, but nonprofit organizations can we will donate the, the space and the teacher to teach a class and, and raise money for, for the local organizations. Um, yeah, our, our community commitment is super strong.
0: How do you guys uh, set the schedule? Is there, like, types of classes that, you know, that you want to see on certain days? Do you have lots of restorative programs? Like, is there, do you even call things like restorative or vinyasa, or is there? Yeah,
1: yeah, we've got some restorative classes. We have some vinyasa classes. We have a couple of, a couple of classes that are the creations of the teachers themselves. For example, a really popular class we have, which is taught by a, (laughs) <laughs> really charismatic French woman, and and she calls it bones in balance, and so it's all about preventing osteoporosis. And she she brings in a lot of really esoteric stuff, chanting, and um, we have yin classes. Most of our classes, by and large, are hatha. Yeah. And we have a pretty standard schedule that really doesn't change that much, but we do reevaluate every quarter. So as we prepare for the, to launch the next quarter, we talk to each one of our teachers individually and we say, do you you know, do you want to keep things as is? Do you have another idea? Are you seeking to make a change? And then, based on what our teachers are passionate about and feeling, and what's happening in their lives, that's how we decide for the next quarter what we're going to offer. Yeah,
2: we we have 125 classes a week, mm-hmm. so it's a pretty hefty schedule. It's yeah, I mean, a pretty heavy schedule. Yeah, and well, we have 60 teachers, like we mentioned before. It's a lot
1: of conversations, it, <laughs> at least yeah. four yeah. times yeah. a year. And, and then
2: you know, on top of on top of the classes, we have tons of workshops. Um, we bring in guest teachers, nationally recognized teachers. Uh, throughout the year um, sometimes we have to rent a big ballroom um, Rodney and Colleen Seidman were here last month um, we had a hotel uh, who's coming up
1: oh we've mm-hmm. got so Diane Bondi is coming in February Kira Sloan is coming in January Baxter Bell is coming in March Leslie Kaminoff is coming in April <laughs> Doug Keller comes every year
2: he's coming in June
1: mm-hmm. yeah
2: so we, you know you know, we've become a destination for a lot of these yeah. national teachers, you know, coming in. Um, I teach uh, at least one big workshop a month, usually around um, some type of therapeutic aspect. Um, I've got people that just have become groupies for just coming to workshops. The only every time I see them is when they come to my workshops. and mm-hmm. um, But that's, you know, like, you know, two and a half hours, like on a Saturday afternoon. Um, so I've ended up, you know, healing a lot of back pain and shoulder pain and neck pain and knee pain and and so forth um also p- see people privately uh, for therapeutics once a month um what else do we do <laughs> we've got a massage <laughs> therapist like Down. we have it's a only, lot of
1: we have a lot of kids and families yeah. programs too yeah. We baby yoga kids yoga teens yoga workshops for parents and kids um, classes for parents and kids that they family yoga they can bring their kids to
0: how has
2: the business of yoga changed
0: over the years?
1: It's gotten harder.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: the the it's number of yoga studios have gone way up, um, which has divided the um, the crowd. Um, you know, back around two thousand six was really kind of the height of of yoga, where everyone was doing yoga, and that's kind of you know slowed down a bit over the last decade or so. But the number of yoga studios that have come and gone has certainly gone up, and the number of teachers out there, you know, have, you know, really increased. It has. And I think, and
0: I, I, I kind of wanted to mention this before, and now is a good opportunity for it. The number of yoga teachers has increased, and I'm generally a big fan of more people doing yoga teacher training programs and the more teachers kind of the better, um, better it is for everybody, because there's an element of competition out there that, if you're going to get hired by a studio you have to be really 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 good
2: mm. Yeah. You know?
0: mm-hmm. uh, if there's only five yoga instructors in the city all those five yoga instructors are going to teach all the studios but mm-hmm. there's you know there's a thousand i mean this happens when we do auditions for vita you know i work at vita and we have auditions and we have 12 people audition and sometimes we hire one yeah out yeah. of all those and all of them are perfectly Capable of yoga instructors. The question is, are they good enough to come right onto our schedule and teach right away? And that, and we're not going to hire you unless you are. And so there's that. That I think it does. That that I think to me is one of the big reasons why it's 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 not a bad thing to keep, have these yoga teacher trainings,
2: right? What one of the issues that I have that I've that I've seen is is quality. I've got an example. Um, I met this this young woman that she said she had just uh, finished a teacher training program. And um, she just finished a course on choosing a playlist, you know. And I don't remember anything in the ancient texts that talk about, you know, yeah. making a playlist and why anybody would, would try and make money off someone trying to be a yoga teacher trying to make a playlist. Um, but that's kind of how far, you know, it's gone from, you know, what we think, you know, yoga is. And, um, you know, and as, as a yoga studio, it's kind of like, you know, if she came to me and said that she, this is the course she took, I would say that has no value to us. Right, you know, at all, um, you know, but that's the kind of yoga studio that we are, and I'm sure that there's the place that taught her that probably does have a lot of value, mm-hmm. you know, to that. So do you
0: think? Do you think a lot of the competition from the studios comes from other small box studios, the things like the Soul Cycles, the Orange Theories, the things yes. like that?
2: Yes.
1: Yeah, and oh. and the the problem is here then the the conflation of yoga with other forms of fitness, and. The danger of that, if, if we can even use the word danger, is that, that what yoga is gets so diluted and misunderstood in 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 mainstream culture. And so the people who might really benefit from what we're doing at Sun and Moon, for example, might never find their way here because they've been intimidated from what they saw on TV or or on social media. And they don't believe that they fit in or they they don't believe that they that they have the capability to to quote do yoga and and so so I I think that that's the risk
0: yeah there's certainly a risk out there I mean it's the yoga the yoga industrial complex we call it that uh has done a very good job of making itself uh very elitist meaning that uh there's a barrier to entry in that um they make it seem a lot of yoga teachers make it seem esoteric uh, make it seem like this is uh you know you must be a vegetarian you must you know do this you must do that that there's all these rules that there's a certain path to yoga when you know there's the oldest one of the oldest sayings there is is the truth is one and the, the paths are many right and so i i they the yoga the yoga industry has done a good job of of making themselves unaccessible right as a, as a marketing ploy for a lot of, for a lot of, for for lack of a better word um and what i've seen in in doing this dc yoga podcast is that studio owners across the the region are fighting with that and yet doing winning like mm. winning in lots of ways like they're the the studio owners I've talked to who have been the most successful are the ones that take a look at their immediate community and ask the immediate community, what do you all need? And then provide that. Uh, and if you can do that, I think you can be successful. It's not going to be easy. You're never going to be a millionaire. But you will be able to provide something that people need and that people will find you. People will find and you.
1: And that really brings it back to, to the, the essence of what yoga is, which is connection. So if you're connecting with the, with the people who... Are walking and seeking something, then you're doing it right.
2: Yeah, you know, you know what's changed for us is that when there were fewer yoga studios around, we were the place. And now with the yoga industrial complex coming in, it's it's kind of like akin to when Barnes and Noble came out. We're now the independent bookstores of yoga, um, and you can still survive. You know, if you keep your niche. You know, if people know what you're there for. You know, we know why people come you know, come to see us. And it's not because they want to sweat, you know, it's because they're coming for the things that I'd mentioned before. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: And and so for the people who do want the sweat and the, and the, the physical workout aspect of it, we're happy that these other places are around because, because there's a need for everything. And when the needs are met, it's a happy a happy place to live, right? One of the one of the things that also I think is is nice about about our studio, our teaching staff is so is, um what they bring to the classes is about so much more than than yoga itself. So most of our teachers are not making a living exclusively teaching yoga. We we have teachers who are. Are psychotherapists and social workers and classroom teachers. We have teachers who are business professionals, IT people, lawyers, physical therapists. We have teachers who are uh, federal government employees, state department officials, uh, high-ranking members in their in their various professions, and then, and then they're coming to sun and moon to share their gifts and passion. And that also appeals to, especially around D.C., it, I think it appeals to people on a different level than, than, than the physical. It appeals to people's intellectual curiosity and to people's recognition that that this is a practice that can elevate and, and enhance any lifestyle that you're choosing if you're doing it mindful mindfully.
0: Yeah. So talk a little bit about um, yoga as or at least a vehicle for social good.
1: Oh, yeah. Well. I think
0: this is I mean, this is sort of controversial, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I, I tend my own kind of thought on the my own sort of practice is, you know, if I change myself, I lead by example. Um, and I, we all change society by changing ourselves. I'm not a really big believer in telling other people what to do and to try and have them change their behavior. Um, like I just, I've, I've seen it not work so many times in my life. Uh, so for me, like, I don't, I not, I'm not so, uh, I guess I don't, I guess I don't use my yoga in that sort of sense. Right. So, um, yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, one of the things that emerged after the election of 2016 is we had a couple of members of the community, yoga teachers, and uh, and human resource professionals, got together and created a series of of dialogue classes where where people would come and learn how to talk to each other about about difficult topics, and so it was. Uh, it was about about the, the skills and the potential for having the dialogues that typically we as human beings averse to conflict would try to avoid. And, and that is, is a form of social action, to, to be able to face a reality that's sitting in front of you and speak to it in a way that makes it easier to take and it and it doesn't mean and this is one of the i think one of the misunderstandings of the principle of non attachment or or um contentment as it's as it's taught in the yoga sutras it doesn't mean lie down and take abuse it doesn't mean look at look in the face of wrongdoing and allow it to happen it means It means watch what's unfolding in front of you exactly as it is and speak to it in a powerful and skillful way. And so to have a conversation with somebody who is on the other side of the fence as you in in terms of viewpoints and opinions is to let go of the idea that you will change their mind uh, and let go of the idea that if they continue to have their opinion that the world will end but find a way to be able to express your own truth and to hear their truth and look for the for the faintest possibility that you could go forward and, and do something with both of those truths simultaneously uh, existing.
0: Yeah, I like that.
1: One one thing that we're known for, especially in our in our Arlington neighborhood of Cherrydale, is back in 2015, the landlord of our of our strip center leased a vacant space to a gun store business, and the neighborhood was really really upset, uh, and so they came to us and said. What can we do about it? Our space in that strip is is the largest space there. and and it's a it's a magnet for the for the neighborhood. And so we ended up, uh, we called the owners of the business and we invited them for a conversation at the studio. And so we had members of the yoga community. We had the gun store owner there. We had local elected officials there. We had a couple of police officers. We had the landlord. We had some lawyers. We had some friends. We had some neighborhood activists. And we all sat around and talked about the fact that nobody in the room was denying their constitutional right to sell firearms, nor was anybody in the room denying anyone's constitutional right to own a firearm What we were suggesting to them was that there are appropriate places for this business and there are places that are not appropriate for this business. And do you really want to be in a place where the neighborhood is not set up to support you? And it it, it turned a little ugly after the fact because they, they they got backed by the NRA. And then we started getting threats to our business and we started getting uh, zero star reviews mysteriously on our Yelp page. And so that was unpleasant. But in the end, the landlord and the business worked out a deal and they went elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And the neighborhood was really grateful to us for, for for leading that effort to offer this business a different plan.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, you know, if... There is no place to have that conversation in the neighborhood. Then you know. Then the
1: conversation doesn't happen, and the conversation has to happen. And we really felt that that they heard us, and they did understand. I think it they they were young and inexperienced as business people, and I think they they got um, they lost they lost they lost control of the narrative when, when the NRA stepped in, to be honest. But, but, uh, but the conversation was, was a really useful one for all of us.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, do you guys offer anything else at the studio besides yoga? Do you guys offer like Pilates classes? Do you offer like, like other kind of movements?
1: We do. We have a couple of Pilates classes. We, uh, we, we have regular meditations, uh, at several different points during the week. Um, we but the, the bulk of what we do is is yoga
0: that's cool um places to find you guys online
1: so our website is sunandmoonstudio.com and we're on instagram and we're on facebook and
0: Anything, uh, any special events coming up in January, February? You noticed? You noted a couple of guest instructors. Anything else coming yeah, up? Yeah, well,
2: January 1st, Andy and I are teaching our annual workshop, Bring Out the Old, Breathe in the New. Okay, <laughs> cool. Um, I've been teaching that for 21 years now. Yeah. <laughs> Andy started teaching it with me about 10 years ago. But it's a real nice blend of... Ringing out your body from the last year and breathing (laughs) in this next new year. So a lot of breathing that comes in with it and a good way to start off the new year. It's 10 a.m. on January 1st. Cool. Um, I've got healing lower back pain on February 8th. Um, I don't have the schedule in front of me, but if you go to the website, you can see all the things coming up.
0: Yeah. Um, Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, guys. Thanks for having us. Thank
1: you, Chris. Mm -hmm. Great to chat.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you listen to the DC Yoga podcast, and uh, we'll talk to you guys next time. Take care.